0: Blog Talk Radio Blog Talk Radio
1: Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Um, tonight our tweet chat is open so that the, you can speak with others and discuss the interview. Chuck Wally, Mae Wilkinson, and Pierre at will be moderating the chat with you, and that's with the hashtag TCK. Um, tonight... I am just so honored to have Dr. Dr. Russell Barkley joining me. Dr. Barkley is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the Medical University of South Carolina. He is the author of 13 books and clinical manuals and has written over 230 published articles. Dr. Barkley is involved in and is going to bring us today's most cutting-edge research and advances in the diagnosis and treatment of attention deficit disorder. He really is the foremost expert in attention deficit disorder, and as I said, I'm honored to have him here. Uh, I'm also thrilled that for the last segment of tonight's interview, I have a special guest host. Uh, Laura Rollins, the founder of My Attention Coach, will be joining us, and she will be discussing with Dr. Barkley emotional control and accountability in adults, or as Dr. Barkley would call it, owning your ADHD. So welcome, Dr. Barkley. Thank you for joining me.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me here, Marianne.
1: Uh, I mean, this is just—it's great because there's so much confusion, um, you know, with so many parents, and I think that you know this interview is going to help a lot of families. So I would hope. So. I would like. Yeah, it definitely will. And um, I want to start the discussion. Uh, we're going to be discussing many topics, but um, I wanted to start with the basics—the new theory and the you know misperceptions that most people have, you know, as to the reasons behind the disorder in general and impulsivity and distractibility specifically. Um, I want to also discuss the dimensional aspect of this disorder, which I think is what really is causing the confusion. And then we're going to move on to the big guns, the executive functioning and how it affects uh, people through adulthood. So, uh, ADHD is nothing new. It's been around for hundreds of years. So, what is ADHD?
0: Well, at, the, at its most superficial level, ADHD, uh, as you know, is a problem with paying attention, being distractible, not being able to persist at things, uh, being uh, skipping from one thing to another, and just being unable to sustain your activities toward your goals and tasks and to the future more generally. So there is this major problem with attention that people first pick up on. And along with it, of course, is a lot of impulsive and often restless behavior and, and fidgeting. And so the individual is um, verbally impulsive and says things as they come to mind, physically impulsive so that they're reacting to events uh, in terms of their behavioral responses too quickly, but also mentally they're very impulsive. Their ideas are skipping across from one thing to another. They don't stop and think about what they're about to do before they act or consider the long-range consequences of their actions. So generally, that's how you would see ADHD described in a clinical textbook or in our diagnostic criteria or even in trade books. But those are the most superficial features of the disorder. They're the most apparent features. If you dig underneath that, you realize that those problems are coming from a deeper problem in the way people are developing self-control, and that's what will get us into this idea of what is self-regulation, what are these executive functions that give us self-control. But in the meantime, I I think most people understand ADHD to be this problem with paying attention, with distractibility, with lack of persistence, uh, and then, as I said, problems with impulsiveness, and in younger people, problems with being quite hyperactive and restless. Now, by adulthood, the hyperactivity has declined markedly and often is simply a a subjective feeling internally of a need to be busy and doing lots of things. Uh, But outwardly, the individual isn't climbing on furniture anymore or sliding down banisters or engaged in a lot of, of motoric behavior like they're driven by a motor. That tends to disappear, that overt activity. But the subjective sense of restlessness is still there.
1: Right, and you know, can you tell us about you know? I, I watched your video, and, and as I told you before, uh, before when we spoke before the interview, I've read your books, and the theory um, that you have about ADHD, um, which yeah. is you've proven, is counter to the description in the current DSM-4, um, and there are you know proposed upcoming changes for the DSM-5. But um, you know, from what I gathered, it was. The defining the criteria, you know, with such narrow criteria was causing the confusion. So, yes. um, what is your theory on it, and what yeah. changes are proposed for the upcoming DSM?
0: Okay. Well, well, my theory might appear to be, um, you know, counteracting what the, the diagnostic criteria actually say. This manual that we use called the DSM-IV actually, if you think of them as two levels, as I've said, the the symptoms they describe are the most obvious ones, but they're not the deep problems. It's not like saying that autism is talking funny and flapping your hands. Well, autistic people may do that from time to time, particularly in severe cases of autism, but that's not autism. That's not the severe problem with relating to other people as people and using language appropriately. So you see, if you dig deeper, you find these underlying problems that actually are causing the most obvious and superficial features. So, my theory basically says that there are five executive abilities that you have and that these are being disrupted by ADHD as it develops, and one of those, of course, Uh, is the ability to show self-restraint, to inhibit your behavior and buy time in order for you to be able to think through what you're about to do. So this ability to stop and think before you act, the stopping is the first executive problem, and that's called, as I said, inhibition or or self-restraint. The second problem is the ability to be aware of yourself and what you're doing And while doing that, to be able to sort of visualize your past, you know, it's the mind's eye, this ability to look back at what has happened and then look ahead as to what may happen next. What most people would call hindsight and foresight is the second executive ability, this visual imagery that we have in our brain that allows us to visualize what we've done and what's about to happen and get ready for what's coming at us. That's also impaired. So, You've got the mind's breaks, if you want to call it that, which is the self-restraint, and now you've got the mind's eye being a problem for these people. The third executive ability can be simply called the mind's voice. All of us have this internal voice that we use to talk to ourselves during our waking hours. And while you you can certainly use it to converse with yourself and tell yourself jokes and laugh and so on, it's really there as a form of self-direction to be able to guide yourself with that voice to give yourself instructions, to ask yourself questions, uh, and to simply ponder and describe your past a little bit more in order to clarify your thinking and what you're about to do. So the mind's voice can be a problem for them as well. Those three lead to the fourth executive ability, which is the ability to control your emotions. This top-down executive ability to inhibit strong emotion and then to calm down and self-soothe and distract your attention away from what is so emotionally provocative, and then buy time to reappraise the situation and try to understand it more clearly and maybe redefine it to some extent so it's not so emotional from the way it first appeared. And then after that, be able to organize a new emotional set that's more mature, more appropriate to your goals, more socially acceptable, uh, and then enact that sort of new emotion. It's so what most people would call emotional self-control. And then lastly is what I call the mind's playground. It really is the mental module in the brain that allows us to play with information, to manipulate it, to come up with new ideas and options and ways of approaching things. Now, we use this module for problem solving. If you and I were pursuing a goal and we encountered an obstacle, instead of quitting or just giving up, we would try to mentally solve that problem. What's the obstacle? What else could I do here? What do other people do? What have I done before? And then try to come up with various ways to overcome that and get to our goals despite the obstacle. So to repeat, the five executive abilities that ADHD is interfering with are self-restraint or the mind's breaks, the mind's eye or visual imagery that gives us foresight, and then the mind's voice, this ability to talk to ourselves and reason with ourselves and instruct ourselves, Fourth, as I've said, is the ability to manage your emotions, and finally, is the mind's playground. This ability to be inventive and to solve problems on the way to our goals, and that at, at a core level is what ADHD is all about.
1: You know, when you mentioned before the time blindness, you know, as as you call it, it's a nearsightedness of the future. Yeah. Um, you know, there's also the need for that instant gratification and problems in performance. Um, you know, which appear to be a lack of knowing what to do. But as I understand it now, from um, reading your book, it's not that they do, that people don't have the knowledge, um, but it's following through on actually doing. The, That's correct. What,
0: the the executive abilities that we've just described all act in concert, sort of like a symphony orchestra, in order to help you organize your life over time. And prepare for the futures that are coming at you and people with ADHD struggle mightily with this ability to organize across time Uh, in fact ADHD is the consummate disorder of time management which is why they're always late they're never ready things are lost or disorganized they have trouble getting to work on time trouble getting to school on time trouble with their assignments making appointments, this ability to organize over time is an area that is devastating for them. And you know, as well as I do, that the older you get, the more time-sensitive your life becomes. Right. And so you can get away with not having a sense of time when you're four or five or six. But by the time you become a teenager, and certainly by the time you're an adult, much of your life is very time-sensitive with deadlines and promises and commitments and bills and things that are due uh, I mean, time is this ubiquitous, important part of our life, and that's why we often say that people with ADHD are time blind. They can't deal with this future and this dimension of time that's coming at them, and so it always arrives earlier than they expect, and they're never ready for it. Right.
1: And, you know, also I think that because, as you were saying, that um, it does evolve um, as children grow, and it does become more of an inner, inner internal sensation. So the yeah. restlessness and the need to move and the being physically hyperactive may not be um, as prominent. And But, you know, an adult can be, you know, equally impaired. And, you know, there seems to be, you know, no forth, forethought of the consequences. You know, it seems to me that people um, with ADHD oftentimes make the same mistakes over and over. Indeed, um, they do, you know, and,
0: and part of and why that why is they, that well, I mean, if we go back to that second executive ability, that foresight. if you don't stop what you're doing, if you don't stop the action, there's no chance to even think about later versus now what lies ahead for what i 'm doing now, all it is is now, and so it's that ability to, as your mother said, stop and think, which means to restrain yourself for the moment and now think about the later and what can happen later if you act the way you're doing and of course because they don't stop then they don't think and then later never gets a chance it's always now and they go from one now to another to another and and as a result they're ill prepared for the future that is coming at them because they've given it very little thought And I know to most people, when they see that happening, they think that that's a moral failing, that you're just making a choice. You're choosing not to care about your future. You're just choosing to live in the moment. You could change if you wanted to. And that's not true. These executive abilities are very much neurologically based, they are highly genetic in origin. Which makes ADHD one of the most neurobiological disorders that we know of in, in psychiatry. So Absolutely. it's not a choice. It really is a failure in the executive system that allows people to anticipate that future and get ready for it as well as other people do.
1: Right. And you know, we stress that all the time here on the show, because you know, parents, especially before they're really educated, um, you know, are not aware. I mean, this is a physical disorder, and um, you know, if, if the, the children don't want to fail, adults don't want to fail. And we're going to go more into adults. I'm going to go back for a little while about children. I want to talk about comorbidity, but uh, you know, in thinking about the adult ADHD, I mean, people with adults with ADHD are, can be brilliant. They're very intelligent. Um, it's not a matter of whether they're they're smart or not. They just repeatedly keep doing the same mistakes. You yes. know.
0: A stage of, well, as you've put it very nicely, ADHD is not a failure of knowing what to do. It's not a failure of knowledge. It's a problem with doing what you know, using the knowledge you have. And although the disorder certainly spans the whole range of human intelligence, you know, from average up to gifted, uh, it is not a disorder of intelligence or of knowledge Uh, It is a disorder of using knowledge. I tell people to think about the brain as a two part system. The back part of the brain is where you acquire information about the world. It's where you know things. The front part of the brain is the executive brain. It's the doing brain. It's where you use the knowledge that you've gained in your day to day interactions in life to try to be more effective and successful. So knowing is at the back of the brain. That's not a problem for ADHD. Doing is at the front part of the brain, and that's where the problem comes in. These two parts of the brain are, in a sense, partially disconnected from each other. So it doesn't matter how smart you are. As you've said beautifully, you will continue to do dumb things, even things after the fact that you know you shouldn't have done and were foolish. But stopping yourself from doing them is very difficult to do. So knowing and doing are sort of partly disconnected here.
1: Right, as is also um, people think of memory as, um, you know, memory storage in the brain. And yep. that isn't the type of memory that you're speaking about.
0: No, it isn't. We're talking about working memory, and it really is a, a a good idea that you brought this up because traditional memory that we think of is where you learn something and then you store it away and then you can retrieve it if you need it. Working memory is a very different kind of memory. I call it remembering to do it's where you're actively holding in mind the goal you have, the steps you intend to pursue to get there, and that is guiding your behavior over time toward your goal. That's working memory, it's memory put to work. And that's what ADHD disrupts. It doesn't disrupt knowing or this storage and retrieval. It disrupts remembering what you're doing and where you were going and what those those goals were. You know, a lot of us start to lose our working memory when we get into our late 50s and early 60s. I'm certainly there now. Uh, and uh, ADHD is a, is a lot like that. And What can happen now at my age is you can go to the mailbox thinking that you're going to pick up the mail, but then you pick up the newspaper and you start to read it, and then your neighbor comes over and you converse with them, and then you see some weeds in the garden, so you start to pull those, and then you head back to the house. You never got the mail. Uh, so what's happened is that the things in front of you in your visual field are more compelling than what you were holding in mind and what you would hope to do, uh, and you know it, that's normal when you're getting into your 60s. It's not normal when you're a child. Right. Those and and I'm glad you brought that up yes. because
1: returning to tasks is a big yes. problem. You know, Very much. if if I'm writing out a grocery list and the phone rings, um, right. I can take the call and go back to the list. But um, that's an executive functioning process that a lot of people with ADHD have a deficit with, which is probably why things are right and why everything is left undone. Um, I did want to go back a little bit, and then we're going to come back um, to how this affects um, adults. But I do want to make sure that we talk about comorbidity because I think this, for parents, is causing a lot of confusion. So I'd like to dispel some of the myths surrounding comorbidity with ADHD. And, okay. you know, of course there is comorbidity. Um,
0: Absolutely.
1: But, you know, ADHD as you um, see it in your theory, and I just love it, is that you see it as a dimensional Um, having dimensional levels to it, you know, a a lot like a spectrum. And I think that if a parent can look at it that way, they can better understand what you're going to tell them. So, um, you know, can you first explain how attention deficits differ in different disorders? Because attention problems in ADHD and attention problems in say, an anxiety disorder, are two completely different animals. Yes, they are. Um, And then I'd like to move on to um, SCT, sluggish cognitive tempo.
0: Okay. Well, uh, let me begin with the dimensional aspect of this. I think it's important that people understand that there's only one kind of ADHD. There's not three or four kinds. Uh, out there. Uh, we don't have all these subtypes that we thought were out there. Large studies of populations have shown that this is a single disorder that spans a dimension throughout the entire human population. But when the level of symptoms becomes so frequent and so severe that it begins to interfere with major life activities that you need to get done with family functioning with your education with work with driving with managing money with getting along with friends with establishing intimate relationships when your symptoms are frequent enough that they begin to impair your ability to do those things that's when the disorder begins Uh, and so it really is a dimension in the population you know it's a lot like other abilities like language ability or like intelligence Uh, those span a range of human abilities. But when they get to a point where they are so deficient that they're interfering with your life, you now now have a disorder. So uh, as I often teach our our students here, disorders begin where impairment begins. So understanding the dimensional nature of ADHD can help you understand that when this is in uh, a family, other family members may show little bits of the disorder. They will show some of the symptoms. We call it the family phenotype even if they don't have enough symptoms to be diagnosed or to be experiencing impairment, they will show some of the features of ADHD, but not like the person who's diagnosed who's gonna have a lot more of those symptoms, a lot more often with a lot more impairment. So I really appreciate the fact that you talk about this dimensional nature of the disorder, because to some extent, everybody's got a little bit of inattentiveness, but it doesn't have to interfere with our life. But if you have ADHD, it usually is interfering with a number of major life activities. Now, you've talked about comorbidity, which simply means that ADHD can coexist with other other disorders. And our own research shows that over 80% of children and adults with ADHD will have a second disorder, and over half of them will have a third disorder. So it's very common to see disorders clustering together. And there are certain clusters that occur with ADHD. Uh, Among them, of course, are things like oppositional disorder and conduct disorder and the learning disabilities, but also to a lesser extent, though significantly, disorders like anxiety, depression, and even autistic spectrum disorders can all coexist with ADHD uh, in some cases. And so people need to understand that ADHD isn't necessarily a simple disorder that's plain vanilla. It's often a bit more complex because clinicians have to try to identify which of the disorders you have, how many you have, and then, of course, how to treat each of them appropriately.
1: Right. And Tourette's syndrome also is, is oftentimes um, comorbid. Um, I, I, we've been getting a lot of emails. I got a lot of emails today. Um, yeah. And I can't go into all of them, but I think we're going to cover everything that the parents really are struggling with. But one question that I got at least 15 emails about was a confusion on how can a child have autism and have a comorbid diagnosis of ADHD since... ADHD is a lack of concentration, and autism is a child that's hyper-focused, which I guess this could also pertain to obsessive-compulsive disorder as well. So can you explain how there could be comorbidity with the two?
0: Yes. Well, first of all, this is a relatively new idea. Remember that our diagnostic manual, this DSM-IV that we've been using for the past, oh sixteen 16 years now, uh it's said that these two disorders do not occur together. They don't coexist, which turned out to be false. They do coexist. About twenty percent of people with ADHD fall somewhere along the spectrum of autistic disorders, maybe high functioning Asperger's, sometimes more severe. Uh and if you study people with autistic spectrum disorders, anywhere from twenty-five to sixty percent of them will have ADHD as a coexisting disorder. Now, what do the two of them look like? Well, first of all, we have to understand that uh, autism is a disorder of relating to other people. It's a disorder of social relatedness. With that is a disorder of language abilities uh, and the structure of language and how language is used to to, uh, coordinate your interactions with others, to communicate with people, and to reciprocate with people that give and take. Uh, And then, of course, along with that, there may be difficulties with motor functioning, as you know, often things like stereotypic mannerisms, ritualistic Mm -hmm. behavior, and so on. But the core of autism are are these two traits that deal with language and relating to others. Now, ADHD is a disorder of inhibition and persistence over time, uh, and as we've said, these executive functions. And now you can see how the two of them can overlap. Indeed, Research this past year has shown that genes for one disorder, ADHD, are often found in autism and vice versa. So there might be some genetic overlap between the two disorders, which helps to explain why both of them may have problems with attention uh, and to some extent with, with inhibition. But to tell them apart, autism is not a disorder of impulse control. It's not a disorder of disinhibition and distractibility Uh, and this lack of persistence toward goals, when you see those occurring with autism, you have both ADHD and an autistic spectrum disorder. Uh, Where you see autistic behavior occurring alone without the impulsiveness, uh, then it's strictly an autistic spectrum disorder. So it helps people to understand, I think, that while the two disorders are distinguished from each other and often don't occur, uh, there is a, a small percentage of time uh, where they do occur in a substantial minority uh, of cases. They do occur together. Now, it is true that some autistic individuals overfocus on details to the exclusion of the bigger picture. It's often said that they not only don't see the forest for the trees, they can't see the tree for the bark because <laughs> they're so over But that can vacillate from time to time with the attention disorder that we see in ADHD, which is they can't persist toward goals. And there's no reason that the two of those cannot coexist in individuals as they often do. Uh, so you have to stop thinking of those two as one excludes the other. It is very easy at times for you to hyper-focus on something um, to, to the exclusion of your surroundings, but that also means that you're not gonna be able to pursue your goals and to be able to shift flexibly across tasks and adjust your behavior accordingly. Uh, And you're not going to be uh, able to resist distractions as well. Uh, And it's not like a person with autism is always hyper-focused, just like it's not like a person with ADHD is always lacking in persistence. As you know, people with ADHD, if they enjoy what they're doing, if there's an immediate reward or consequence for getting it done, if they find it very pleasurable... Um, you know, can persist at that. You know, as Samuel Johnson said, there's nothing like a hanging in the morning to focus the mind. If there's a hanging in the morning, people with ADHD can and indeed will persist at what they need to get done.
1: And so parents you, you say all the time, you know, their kids can sit and play video games for hours and focus so they can't have ADHD. Well, you know, they can. Oh, you yes, know? they And the one is, thing has I mean, nothing to do. That. And that's why it's so important that you're really getting out the message, and that's why I'm so happy you came on. Because if you really um, restrict the criteria of what ADHD is, you're missing a lot of kids, and a lot of kids are being misdiagnosed. And I love, um, you know, I think we try to explain. I try to explain to parents if they if they think of the brain as having so many different pathways, um, you know, that the different pathways can be affected in within the same disorder. So, right. you know, that's why the presentations are going to be different. I, I don't I don't know if you know Temple Grandin, she's been on several times. She does yeah. a great analogy to um um, a flight map, an air—you know, like an airplane flight map, where you right. have too many flights going to the East Coast, not enough going to the West Coast, and how all the circuits get crossed. And it yes. really, you know, with ADHD, that's what it just sounds like, you know. Well, it is.
0: It's a very good way to put it, and and I also agree with you that many times disorders can share some of their deficits. For instance, uh, you know, people with autistic spectrum disorders do have a working memory problem, but it's mainly with verbal working memory. Uh and that's because of their language problems. Verbal working memory is that mind's voice that we talked about where you right. talk to yourself and reason through things. ADHD, on the other hand, does have some trouble in that area, but it has an even greater problem with what we call nonverbal working memory, which is that hindsight and foresight, that ability to use imagery, to ponder what's about to happen, to look ahead and see where you're going, to look back to see where you've been, to get some guidance from your past. That's even more of a problem for people with ADHD than people with autism. So while both of them are working memory problems to some extent, they differ in the nature of the working memory problem that they're going to have. So it may sound like we're splitting hairs here, but those are the things that uh, clinicians, pay attention to in trying to differentiate disorders.
1: Right, And I think also it's important to mention perception because I think one of the, um, the misconceptions is that um, these kids and even adults um, don't perceive things the way that somebody neurotypical or somebody without the disorder um, perceives things. And, and, you know, as you say, that's not true, that they're in <laughs> touch with reality. Right? yes
0: yes, they are a d h d has it, it does not have anything to do with how the back part of the brain is processing information. they perceive the same world you do uh they perceive the same distractors that you perceive what a d h d is interfering with is the ability to govern your own behavior it's your self control and so where you may hear a distracting noise in the hallway while you're trying to concentrate on something you're reading, you'll hear that, but you won't react to it. You won't respond to it with certain behavior. The person with ADHD hears it, and they react to it. They get up, they go out, they explore, they talk to the person in the hallway that made the noise, and now they're off task again. That's not a perceptual problem. That's a impulse control problem, they're responding to the world differently than others, but they're seeing the same world that you and I are seeing. So this idea that there's a disorder of some kind of mental filtering in ADHD is false.
1: All right. And I just want to go back to um, what I mentioned before, and I, very briefly. Um, I, I just really want you to touch upon this, because I think that um, parents that have children which you have a phenotype of SCT, which is sluggish cognitive tempo, um, mm-hmm. Those kids, I think, are really falling through the cracks.
0: Very much so, so. even more than ADHD. Yeah, a, right? They really are. Now, that's so, Can you tell a, a us what that is? Yeah, I'd be glad to. In fact, it's a rather exciting area of some of my research right now um, that I've been doing. But um, it, this is a, a second attention disorder, and it was discovered back in the late 1990s by around 2001, we were beginning to see some review papers about it, but let me describe it for you. This is a disorder that, although we're calling it sluggish cognitive tempo or SCT, some clinicians call it attention deficit disorder, which I wish they would stop doing because that was the name for ADHD years ago, and it just creates confusion. But let me describe it for for your listeners. SCT is a pattern of symptoms that at times is almost the opposite of ADHD. It's a pattern of behavior in which the individual stares a lot, is very daydreamy, spacey, mentally confused and mentally foggy, they're lethargic, they're sleepy, they're slow moving, they're hypoactive. This pattern of daydreamy, sleepy, lethargic, slow moving behavior uh, is a very different attention problem. Uh, these people actually do have problems on the perceptual side of the brain. They don't detect information accurately. They don't process it very quickly. They make a lot of mistakes in the work that they're doing. Whereas people with ADHD, they don't often make a lot of mistakes. They just don't get any work done. So ADHD is a disorder of productivity, how much work you're getting done in a unit of time, whereas SCT is a problem of accuracy, How well are you attending to and processing information quickly uh, and accurately? Now, this SCT was often thought to be a type of ADHD, and many people still think that it it is uh, a subtype of ADHD, but within the last couple of months, there have been some papers, including the first study of adults with SCT that I finished up and is now about to be published in one of our um, psychology journals, uh, what those studies are showing is that SCT is a separate disorder entirely. It's not a part of ADHD. It's not a type of ADHD at all. It's a freestanding disorder of attention, and it's a, of a very different kind of attention, what we call selective attention or focused attention, this ability to rapidly home in on what's important from what isn't and to process information quickly and accurately. So. Our study um, that we just did, we did a a survey of a large sample of adults across the entire United States, and we found that more than half of the people who had SCT did not have ADHD, and more than half of the people who had ADHD did not have SCT at all. But in about 40 to 45% of the cases, the two disorders did coexist with each other, especially if the person with ADHD only had its inattentive form and was not impulsive and hyperactive. So this is one of the first papers to show that these really are separate disorders, not subtypes of a common problem. And of course we've known for a while that SCT individuals instead of being um you know very uh, talkative and aggressive and boisterous and emotional are somewhat shy, they're a little withdrawn, they're a little passive, a little reticent, um whereas ADHD individuals have high rates of oppositional behavior uh, of uh, if, uh, proneness to being easily frustrated and impatient and sometimes, you know, oppositional and defiant. Uh, they also, as you know from the uh, news media this week, uh, there have been a couple of articles in uh, national press uh, about ADHD being linked to antisocial behavior, of course, and that is true. Right. Whereas SCT shows no significant linkage Mm -hmm. with oppositional behavior, antisocial behavior, drug use, and and so on. So in many ways, these are quite different disorders.
1: Right. And I'm glad that's why I wanted you to explain it, because, you know, this is the child that's a bit spacey, that's staring, that seems to be distracted. Um, It's it's very different. Um, You know, we discussed before um, about how um, really the the disorder evolves from early childhood to teens to an adult. Um, So I want to start now talking about, um, you know, what what happens in untreated or mistreated ADHD, uh, you know, across the lifespan. And, um, you know, I wanted to to talk about some specific things because I think in the teen years, um, there's always the risk of... um, Um, self-medicating, these kids are much more likely to get involved with drugs. They're much more likely to to have sex earlier than other um, teens their age. Um, So they are at high risk due to their impulsivity and they're not thinking things through. But if you take it a step further into the adulthood, do you think that um, a person, an adult, let's say somebody in their 20s, should a person with ADHD create a lifestyle to fit his or her disorder um, or, you know, maybe not choose a nine-to-five job sitting at a desk, um, or should they really be persevering on overcoming their deficits? So what, what is easier
0: and more productive? Yeah, well, it's a great question, and, and actually I'm going to um, split the baby in half here and say uh, do both. Uh, I think it's very important, first of all, that you receive some counseling or coaching or even vocational assessment on ADHD-friendly environments that you can select yourself into where you're not likely to be as impaired and you're more likely to be successful at something that you enjoy doing. For instance, uh, a lot of adults with ADHD find that self-employment is more fulfilling than working for someone else. And part of the reason for that, of course, is you're your own boss. You work on your own schedule. We know that ADHD delays your your, what we call the diurnal rhythm, which is simply your peak period of arousal by several hours. People with ADHD report (laughs) that they're more alert and awake by afternoon and evening, whereas the average person reports their peak alertness hours as late morning into the early afternoon hours. And so now you can work around that if you're self-employed. Also, we find that people who are self-employed like the, the excitement of it. They like this ability that, um, or, or this capacity to have to respond at the moment to a crisis because you're the boss. You've got to solve this. This is your business. So you know, oftentimes they can rise to the challenge of self-employment, whereas if they work for other people, they've got to work on somebody else's hours, do what other people tell them to do, and so on. So, you know, look for ADHD-friendly jobs, uh, for instance, photography, videography, performing arts. Music, uh, also visual arts, uh, the military, door-to-door sales, be a drug rep. You know, these are lively, exciting professions that allow a lot of movement and change. You know, if you're a videographer, you're going from one place to another, you know, filming presidential candidates. Then the next story, you're filming tornadoes in Alabama. Then the next time, you're being given orders to go someplace else to cover a rally. You know, that's a very exciting lifestyle. As long as you don't have to do the paperwork You're fine. So look for these sort of ADHD-friendly environments that sort of allow you to to have your symptoms without necessarily interfering with your work. Mm -hmm. But there are going to be times in life, as you know, Marianne, that all of us have to persist at things we don't enjoy doing. And then uh, that's often outside of your life. It may be things as simple as balancing your checkbook, paying your bills on time, doing the laundry, you know, getting your kids' homework done, getting your children to their various appointments and schedules. You know, th- this is sort of, sort of the scut work of life, but it's important, and you got to get it done. And if it starts to fall through the cracks, serious things can start to happen. Your and car I will get repossessed, and you know, utilities right. get turned off, and things like that.
1: And you know, and I think it's important also because as we discussed early in the interview that this is a physical problem. This is yeah. a rest an inner restlessness and it yeah. makes me crazy when parents um you know don't stand up to um you know to to, to the idea of conformity for our kids. Um yeah. educationally. Um it, it just it drives me crazy because a lot of parents really fear BOCES programs and alternative um yeah schools, and, I mean, these are not behavioral, kids with behavioral problems. Most of these kids are brilliant kids that need to learn differently, and they learn, like you said, you know, my daughter goes to school for the performing arts. She's a very visual person. You know, there are a lot of options for these kids, and um, you know, choosing the right career is going to be very important because a lot of times you're not going to want to go home. (laughs) Marriages and relationships are very hard for people with ADHD. So, um, what impact does the impulsivity and distractibility have on relationships, and how can a young adult um, understand this within themselves? Because it's very difficult yeah. for them, and it's very difficult for the partner.
0: Well, as you pointed out, as people with ADHD grow up, uh, a number of new domains start to become potentially problematic for them, and one of those is in the area of friendships and social relationships. And then as they move into adolescence and young adulthood, these more intimate, you know, partnering relationships, uh, including, you know, dating and marital relationships. Uh, And those are very important domains for us, of course. And what we find is that ADHD, as you well know, uh, begins to interfere markedly with these. Uh, The individual finds that they're not paying attention to their partner. They're not sensitive to their needs. They're not listening to the other person's side of the story. They don't take into consideration the others they're living with before they make decisions or do things. And so the partner begins to feel like the ADHD adult doesn't care uh, about their view or their position or the way that they would like to see things done. Uh, And you know, that's not a good recipe for a long-term relationship if you're not able to concentrate on what people are saying to you or take into consideration what their feelings are. Uh, And so, you know, while living with somebody with ADHD for a week or two can kind of be fun and like being on vacation, you know, after a while, we all have to settle down and pursue more serious matters. Uh, and that's very difficult for the ADHD person to do. As I said, things like paying bills on time, you know, getting the chores done, seeing that the dishes are done, you know, seeing that the laundry's done, seeing that the kids got picked up from school and the doctor's appointments. And, you know, the, the uh, everyday daily life responsibilities, they're not fun. And that's what the people with ADHD let go, and the partner has to pick that up. And there reaches a threshold where the partner starts to refuse to do that anymore and even comes to feel like, you know, I'm, I'm raising another child here. I have to pick up after them. I have to follow up. I have to remind them. I have to call them. You know, I'm sort of in the trenches 24 7. And, you know, this is supposed to be another adult I'm living with, but they're certainly not handling their responsibilities like another adult would do. And so, as you know, they often come into our clinic, you know, with their ADHD partner saying, you know, either fix this person or I am out the door because I, I can't put up with this anymore. But that's because they're viewing it as that a choice. Is
1: there That's ever a point that someone is too old to change? Because now I want to start t- talking about different treatments. No. Um, you know, are you ever I don't too old? So. Okay, No, good. I, no, I good don't point. think so.
0: I, I think that certainly there are irreparable harms that happen by having ADHD that you can't go back and change. If you've already lost a marriage or a relationship, uh, if you didn't get that college degree that you wanted to get because you just couldn't finish that last semester and those papers that need to get turned in, Some of those things are irreparable, you can't go back and fix them. Others are reparable; you can fix them. And you can change uh, with the various treatments that we have available. It is never too late to treat this disorder. Indeed, treating it earlier can save your life. It can save you from having car accidents in which you harm people or harm yourself. It could save you from developing cardiovascular disease, and cancer because new research is now showing that ADHD predisposes to the two biggest killers in the U.S. uh, because of the lifestyle that these people lead. So that's why I tell people, even if you're older, even if you're in your 50s and 60s and you just discover you've had this disorder, yes, I know there are things that are lost to you permanently because you started late. But it's never too late to change because you still have that future before you, and it can be a better future than it would be if you didn't get any treatment.
1: Absolutely. And speaking of treatments, I wanted to talk a little bit, um, just briefly, about the stimulants because they've been the staple for a long time. And I think I think I don't want to you know misquote what I read, but I think you're finding that as far as treatment responses for the stimulants and uh, non-stimulants non-stimulant drugs, that they work on very different. And I don't want to use the word subgroup, but for lack of a better word, um, different levels of the dimensions of the disorder. And what I want to discuss is the difference between the drugs, um, how they help. And I also want to be very honest and and just ask you, many parents and um, adults as well see a lot of mood changes, a lot of negative behaviors when they're on stimulants. There are outbursts, there's weepiness, there's meltdowns. You know, for some kids on stimulants, it really looks like it triggers um, you know, an oppositional defiant or bipolar. So what what is happening when a parent sees this? What should they do? And yeah. what, what, how, what type of um, kids and adults do the stimulants help?
0: Yes. Well, let, let me emphasize that while those side effects do happen, and they do happen to a significant minority of people, the majority of people don't necessarily experience those particular symptoms. Indeed, Um, Some parents even report that when their children are taking these medications, their affect is blunted. They're very bland. They're almost like a a robot or an automaton. So it can actually swing either way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And sometimes what happens is the stimulants may be exacerbating uh, another underlying disorder that's there that maybe wasn't quite so apparent, but the stimulants might bring it out. As you know, stimulants can bring out a predisposition to ticks or Tourette's, uh, right. if you already have difficulties with irritability or with mania there is the potential anyway that stimulants might bring this out a little bit more than it otherwise might have been seen so it really depends on the pre-existing conditions of the person as to whether family the history might i guess would be important right enough. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and so you know the stimulants are very good drugs, and about 75 to 90 percent of the people who take them do benefit from them. Now they do produce annoying side effects, as you know, things like um, you know insomnia, loss of appetite, stomach ache, headache, things like that. In about uh, less than 10 percent of the people, there is this sort of late day irritability or next morning irritability. Uh, That's usually a consequence of the drug wearing off, and that can be managed by adjusting doses or even switching to a a non-stimulant if that becomes a problem. So there are ways of dealing with some of these irritating or annoying aspects to the drug, but the benefits of the drugs far outweigh these side effects from the majority of people. Only about 3% of people can't tolerate these drugs at all. Really? And and about 20% of people... Find that while the drugs are beneficial, the side effects may outweigh the benefits. And those are the people that need to move on to other drugs like the non stimulants. But for at least 75% or more of the people who take them, you know, the stimulant medications can be very useful for them.
1: Right. And talk therapy for some is good. I mean, for some it's actually more agitating, but for some it's, it's very good, right? Well,
0: we find that the talk therapy is most useful right after the initial diagnosis in, first of all, coming to grips with the diagnosis, what it means, getting information about it, but also, as you know, um, many people, particularly adults, may have a grief reaction after the diagnosis, and they're grieving you know, the fact that they're only now discovering this and that the failures of their past might have been different had this been discovered earlier. So there are various reasons why you might be grieving the diagnosis, and of course, parents of ADHD children grieve the diagnosis because, uh, obviously, no one wants right. to be told that your child has, you know, a developmental disability. But um, so sometimes the counseling focuses on acceptance uh, and on talking this Absolutely. out and coming to realize that while this is a disorder, it's not the worst disorder you can have. It's the most treatable disorder in psychiatry. People don't understand that. We have more treatments for this disorder that produce more improvements for more people, and with a degree of improvement that is two to three times that that we see with drugs that treat depression or anxiety than any other disorder that we treat. So there's a lot of hope out there. The biggest problem is getting it recognized and, and getting the services.
1: Right. Well, you're singing my song with the acceptance because, you know, I, I, I'm sure you haven't heard my um uh, shows, but, you know, that is really what I stress because accepting the diagnosis is one thing. Accepting the life that it will bring is something completely different, and it is probably Absolutely. the most important part of the parenting. Um, you know, I did want to go into um, two other aspects, but I'm not going to. I was going to discuss um, the um, hypopituitary axis and the okay. immunology. And yeah. the parents, I'm going to say it again, and I say it all the time, get a thorough evaluation. Um, you know, I, you speak about it, and um, you know, I want everybody to watch the video I've been posting it. That you know, they are finding an immunological component to some of these children, and as always, the cortisol dysregulation, you know, is 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 also um, a problem for some of these kids and particularly
0: adults. where there is aggressiveness. That's right. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, in testosterone levels, in my daughter's case, it wound up being an endocrine disorder, which was yeah. at the root of everything. Um, mm-hmm. So I really do stress that. Um, I do want to just say before I hand hand it over to um Laura. Um, you know, that neurogenetics and molecular research is really where this disorder is making the breakthroughs. Because the um you're gonna be able to target responses of drugs to specific um you know brain scans, which is gonna be incredible. Well,
0: but that's if the you hope. want to
1: yeah. yeah, oh absolutely I mean yeah. you know target I've had Dr. Henslin on and I um, he's tar- they target with brain scans um different yeah. um drugs for mental illnesses and it's mm-hmm. it's just so promising. But um I'm going to now bring on Laura Rollins. Laura, are you with Hi, us?
2: I am, I am. Hello, how you're are rich? you guys? You're doing fine, a great Good job. You. Thank you. Thanks for thanks for including me. You're
1: welcome. Um, well, you wanted to um go ahead. You wanted to discuss um I mean, you treat a lot of adults with ADHD, so that's why I was thrilled that you're joining us. So go ahead, ask um Doctor Barkley some questions.
2: Right, right, Marianne, and and I do I do coach as as an intervention for ADHD, and Dr. Barkley, I was actually at the Chad conference in the fall and was really intrigued by the discussion that you had in one of your talks around emotional control and how it affects people with ADHD, and I was just was wondering if you could share some recommendations for adults who who really experience that emotional control and and what you recommend that people can that adults what they can do about that
0: okay well I I think first of all recognizing that emotion is part of the disorder as you know Lars is is a very new idea I mean if you read about the disorder all you're reading about are problems with attention and hyperactivity and impulsiveness you know the things that Marianne and I were talking about at the beginning of the show but that comes with it uh, an equally central problem with uh, self-control of emotions and so that you show your emotions impulsively much quicker than other people do. You don't inhibit them. You can't downregulate them as well as other people and calm yourself down and soothe yourself. So that is just as much a part of ADHD as the inattentiveness and the distractibility. So I'm so pleased that you mentioned that because that is a very recent idea that emotion needs to be brought back into the disorder. It was there up until 1968, and then it kind of lost its way, and people forgot about it. But I I really am on a campaign to get people to understand that that's just as important. Uh, And for the very reasons you mentioned, um, it needs to be targeted separately. You can work on concentration and distractibility, but if you don't work on these emotions, they're going to cost you. In fact, they're some of the most socially costly symptoms because we know that the best predictors of dissatisfaction in relationships or even being rejected by peers is not your distractibility or your hyperactivity. It's your quickness to be emotional and to be impatient and to show frustration and sometimes to react with anger or aggression too quickly. That is going to cost you dearly in the workplace, in school, in your family, your marriage and other relationships. So there are a host of things that people can do. We could do a whole hour on interventions for sure. the emotional side yeah. of this. But I like to break it down into the, the five stages of Gross's model of emotion. And if you think about the five places, uh, the, the five steps that are involved in having an emotion, they show you the five places where you have a chance to do something. Now, I'll quickly go through them because, as I said, we could spend hours on it. But um, the, the first step of having an emotion is that something happens in a situation that is emotionally provocative. Well, guess what? Once you realize that certain situations do that to you, then you have a strategy for dealing with it. Don't go there. So avoid that situation. For instance, if you're fond of stopping, stopping off after work at a particular bar and having a beer, but there's usually a few people there that cause you trouble and make you angry, well, guess what? Find a different place for happy hour. You don't have to go to that bar. So one of the most successful strategies for managing your emotions is avoid situations that you routinely know provoke you, uh, either with anger or depression. Now, the second stage is where we uh, pay attention to the particular stimulus. Well, you know, because if you don't pay so much attention to something that's emotionally provocative, guess what? You don't have a strong an emotional reaction to it. So if you can look away from the situation, divert your attention from the person that's provoking you, leave the situation if you need to in order to do that, that's another set of strategies. And that has to do with how you control your own attention. What are you attending to when you are in an emotional situation? Another uh, aspect of emotion is what you think of the situation, how you appraise the situation. And this is really where a lot of people who do cognitive behavior therapy spend a lot of their time helping people. They help people to reevaluate the importance of the event that has happened, uh, to see that it wasn't as important as they thought it was, that it didn't need to be as emotional as they are reacting to the situation. So this ability to reevaluate, reappraise, and look more clearly and objectively at a situation, is another set of strategies that you can do. Talk to yourself, reason through it, question yourself about the emotion. That can help you quell that strong emotion. Finally, there is the ability to suppress the emotion itself. Now, that's the hardest for people with ADHD. So we don't spend a lot of time teaching people to try to suppress the emotion, because after all, these are very impulsive people. If they could have suppressed the emotion, they would have, and they can't. But sometimes you can at least down-regulate very strong emotions by, for instance, putting your hand over your mouth or sitting on your hands or leaving the situation in order to stop that emotion from happening. It's not going to be easy. The earlier in this sequence you try to intervene with your emotions, the more effective you will be. The later in it that you wait, the less effective that you will be. But there's a whole suite of suggestions that people can use to try to help manage these emotional reactions. And then of course, finally, as Marianne already said, the ADHD medications, both the stimulants and the non-stimulants can help to manage some of these emotions to some extent.
2: Okay. Okay. And and I think just understanding that model and and that awareness can be really
0: helpful to to adults with ADHD,
2: children too, but but I yeah. think that that really I think it really hits home in adulthood.
0: Yes. Very much so. Yeah. And adults yeah. have a higher cognitive ability to actually do some of these strategies, whereas with children, they're not, as as you know, mentally as well-developed, mm-hmm. and trying to do cognitive therapy with a child is very difficult, and, and usually I don't think worth the time.
2: Sure. Okay. Okay. Now, I... Moving on to the other point that I wanted to ask about is around accountability. And I was watching a YouTube video that you did. It was part of just a a snippet of a talk that you did in Canada, I think, in the fall. Right. And you were talking about how people with ADHD need more accountability, not less accountability. And was just, I I love that concept, and, and it fits so well with. Coaching, because yeah. really what we do in coaching a lot is is helping the client become accountable to themselves, but we help hold them accountable through the yeah. coaching process.
0: That's a very but, important step.
2: Yeah, and and I just I wanted to ask you as it relates specifically to adults, if you had a couple of specific suggestions that you would recommend for adults with ADHD.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm glad you brought up this concept of accountability because people listening to this presentation tonight or some of my others might say, gee, you've made a great case for excusing these people from the consequences of their actions. I mean, after all, you've said it's biological, you said it's neurogenetic, they don't have a choice. They've got these five executive failures that are taking place. I mean, that's a very persuasive case for somebody who is so mentally impaired that we should not hold them accountable. But what's counterintuitive about this model of executive abilities that are going wrong in ADHD is uh, what we've already said, and that is that the problem isn't knowing what to do. It's using what you already know how to do. And the executive abilities help you to organize yourself over time, as I already said. So. It's time that's their problem, not consequences. And therefore, forgiving them the consequences can only make this disorder worse. People with ADHD get into trouble because much of the consequences of life are delayed consequences, and it's the delay that kills them. If the consequences Mm -hmm. were more immediate, were more frequent, were more salient, if you made yourself accountable to others more often across the day, then you wouldn't be getting into the problems that you're getting into. Uh, and so that's why i say executive disorders are problems with timing not with problems with consequences and therefore to deal with these executive disorders you have to deal with the timing issue and if you can deal with that you can help them and that's where increasing accountability comes in make the consequences quicker more often you know more often more salient more powerful and then make yourself accountable to others more frequently Uh, And that's how you address the problem, is by increasing accountability, not excusing accountability. Uh, And I know sometimes that's hard for people to understand, but it really is a counterintuitive point, yet it's a very important point. First of all, let's understand, society does not want yet another class of victims claiming that they can't be held responsible for what they've done. And there's no way I will argue that ADHD is going to be another class of victims. I think it hurts them, and I think it, it hurts the public perception of the disorder, I prefer to argue for designing these um, environments that are more conducive to accountability, and that's the way you address ADHD. Uh, That's a better message to give to society about the disorder, and I think it's a more helpful message to give to the patient with the disorder, uh, that you are accountable for what you do. Your problem is that much of life is delayed, and it's that waiting, that delay that gets you into trouble. So, uh, you know, for instance, there are situations where, uh, you know, a youngster may be disciplined at school uh, for the way they behave, and then a parent comes to me and says, my child's just been suspended from school for a day because they acted inappropriately or got in a fight on the playground. Go to school and get them reinstated. And I say, no, uh, I'm not going to do that. They're going to have to pay the consequences for this. But I will go to school to try to help them engineer a better environment that holds the student more accountable more frequently so that this doesn't happen again. By designing a artificial, if you will, a prosthesis uh, environment around the person, they won't have to have this happen again or they're less likely to. So that's a better way of dealing with ADHD than just going around and constantly excusing them from the consequences of their, of their actions. And the same is true with adults. You know, I, I want people mm-hmm. to understand that while ADHD is neurogenetic, if you're in a marital relationship with an ADHD individual, um, you know I want you to be more compassionate and understanding and even forgiving at times, but I also want you holding them accountable for their part of the relationship and their responsibilities. But in doing that, you need to help them arrange that accountability so that it's more uh, conducive to their disorder and more effective at managing them. So, for instance, what an adult mm-hmm. might do is if you're a couple, that one member of the couple who has ADHD is going to give up the time-sensitive responsibilities like paying the bills and getting the children to their appointments and doing homework and deciding on discipline for the child. And the adult with ADHD is going to pick up the non-time-sensitive stuff, maybe some of the household chores, maybe the cooking, maybe the grocery shopping, maybe the yard work or the car repair. So in other words, there's going to be a division of labor here, but we're going to divide it up based upon which of us, is better at the timeliness of certain uh, activities and responsibilities, and which of us is not very good at that and is going to give that up and take on other responsibilities instead. Uh, So I'm not going to excuse the adult with ADHD from their marital responsibilities, but we can serve up those responsibilities so that they match ADHD a little bit better. And you know, for yeah, me
1: it I mean, sounds a lot like um, you know, we talk often here about um behaviors, especially defiant behaviors and the parents' perception. And, you know, the parents get so frustrated and I think it's it's sounding the same to me that really parents um and adults need to understand that it's a lack of acquired skills. Yes. Um, which is why the early intervention is so important. But you know, if, if the if the skills can be taught yeah, there's just such a better quality of life. So many people struggle, you know, like you said, into their 50s and 60s, and it's just yeah. unnecessary.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely unnecessary. So. Yeah,
1: um, yeah. Yeah, you know, our time Thank is up. Thank you awesome, so much. I mean, there, there was just so much more that we could have gone into. And oh, stuff. I'm Barkle, sure. you, yeah. You're a treasure trove. Um,
0: <laughs> well, 35 you know, years I, of being in this business, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it was helpful.
1: Uh, you, it's very helpful and you know i thank you for joining us and i thank you for all that you do for kids and you know the the adults because your your new book um which is your latest release taking charge of adult ADHD um we spoke briefly about this before we went on the air the the way that this book is um is written and it was co-written with um with the help of Christine Benton um It's just fantastic. You know, if you you want to go through that very quickly, the way it's broken down, it's really the perfect read for a person that is easily distracted.
0: Yes, well, that's how we designed it uh, was uh, we field tested it with uh, adults with ADHD, and they came back to us and said, don't give me a lot of text, you know, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. Break it up, make it interesting, put highlights here, put sidebars there. Give me small units of information that I can digest and process quickly and then keep me moving and and entertained to some extent. Uh, And so that's how it's broken up. And while it appears to be a little bit scattered to an individual who's not ADHD, it actually seems to work pretty well for the ADHD adults.
1: Right. And, you know, it's funny because as I was reading it, I was like, you know, I was having a hard time. And then, you know, for my husband who has ADHD, this is the perfect read. So, um, you know, if, if there's someone out there, if there's an adult with ADHD, or if you have a child or a teen, uh, you know, this is a great read because, it, it, you know, these disorders, you don't outgrow them. You just um, you acquire skills um, to be able to compensate for a lot of the deficits. So Taking Charge of Adult ADHD is a fantastic you, book. And as I said, there are 13 other books that he's written. So, you know, thank you again. It's been an okay. honor to have you on the show.
0: Yes, nice to meet you both. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And um to follow through on this, I mean it could not be more timely. Sunday I have uh she's back, Denise Goldberg, who is the special education advisor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um you know, this week and this month with a lot of people having their uh CSE meetings and their IEPs preparing for next year. Uh she is just unbelievable and she is going to be here and she's going to be taking your calls and helping you through the process and making you confident because a confident parent does very well at these CSE meetings um, I also want to uh, say a thank you to Jamie at Chili Creations, My, he's designing our new website which will be up in a few days it is spectacular